I'm Kevin, and you're listening to Jean-Luc and Me, Episode 9. I've written my next poem in honor of my cat. I call it Ode to Spot. Felis catus is your taxonomic nomenclature, an endothermic quadruped carnivorous by nature. Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunting skill and natural defenses. I find myself intrigued by your subvocal oscillations, a singular development of cat communications that obviates your basic hedonistic predilection for a rhythmic stroking of your fur to demonstrate affection. A tail is quite essential for your acrobatic talents. You would not be so agile if you lacked its counterbalance. And when not being utilized to aid in locomotion, it often serves to illustrate the of your emotion. The complex levels of behavior you display connote a fairly well-developed cognitive array. And though you are not sentient and do not comprehend, I nonetheless consider you a true and valued friend. Today's episode, Hide and Cue. And what the hell just happened? So, Paul contacted me when the last episode dropped, and... We had a conversation about episode length, and I'm, I'm really going to try to make these 15 or 20 minutes for you guys from now on, but this is my podcast, and that means I can use this time to uh, explain myself, defend myself, whatever you want to call it. You know how most television episodes start not as scripts, but as pitches, it's about a paragraph where you sort of explain the major overarching bullet points of the story. Now, uh, most shows take that pitch and then expand upon it, and they detail it. They add to it. But with Star Trek The Next Generation, it almost seems like they take that six-sentence episode pitch and then turn that into a script without adding anything, without detailing anything. And so ultimately, what you get is something that can be explained fully and completely in five or six sentences. I don't know if that's a mandate from Roddenberry or why the fuck that's happening, but ultimately the finished episode should not be completely described by the pitch. The pitch should have left a lot out. But in Star Trek The Next Generation, there isn't more to the final episode than what I imagine the original pitch sounded like. And if they're not going to put more than six sentences of thought into their fucking episodes, then I'm not going to put more than five minutes into a podcast about that episode. Uh, Except that I am, I guess, because because that's the format I've been told. Oh, good for you! And how was it? But I don't think that's going to be a problem. Uh, A lot happened in this episode. Like, a lot happened in this episode compared to the previous episodes. Twelve minutes in, more had happened in this episode than any previous episode. Thirty minutes in, it already felt like a two-parter. And that's, that's good. That's very good, because being bored, as I said, was the main issue. And stuff was going on. Stuff was uh, actually happening. Stuff was happening uh, emotionally and in the headspace of the characters. That's... that's... Of the, I was going to say that's all you can ask for. That's the bare minimum you can ask for. But they're hitting it. They're fucking hitting it in this episode. John Delancey 
So much better as Q this time around. I mean, they obviously wrote the pilot before casting him, and my guess would be that they wrote this one after they'd already worked with him and seen what he was like, sort of as a person, gotten to be on set with him. And it's he's not just funny. There's also some sort of manic... Like, he'll go from being funny to dangerous, to psychotic. Like that. Just flip of a... <laughs> that's... <laughs> like, with a snap. That's actually... I see what I did there. But no, yeah, it was actually it was very Joker-like. Uh, I really enjoyed it. The Shakespeare battle that Q had with Picard was great. Loved it. Fleshed out Picard... It was a great use of uh, the Q character and John Delancey. Goes without saying that it was a good use of Patrick Stewart. And I don't know, I love me some Shakespeare. I love me some Hamlet. It was well-used Shakespeare. It worked really well. I liked it. And, uh, oh, and I specifically like that when Picard used the Hamlet quote to compare humanity to gods, that Q took it personal. He was like, no, no, I'm the god, motherfucker. I thought that was delightful. On the, uh, on the soundstage planet, when Data turns to look at the encroaching army, and when he turns back, it's, it's Q in the Data, the Data get up and make up and all that. That was really, uh, really surreal, and it really worked. It was shot well, staged well. Uh, this whole episode, really for the first time, captured that adventure and that excitement that Star Trek 66 had. That this one has been very lacking up till now, very antiseptic, but this was a romp, which Star Trek is, or at least was at this point, I feel, supposed to be. When Data was asked to describe the sort of pig monster French army guys to Picard, and he thought better of it, because of the last time he tried to, like, kind of talk shit about the French. And everyone was like, no, don't! And Picard looked at him like he wanted to rip his little robot head off. <laughs> that, was, that was fun. That was a good callback. He's learning. He's the learning machine. The Picard and Riker, uh, let's say, relationship was well on display. And it was well handled. There was a genuine friendship and mutual respect that is still tempered by the seniority and experience of Picard, as well as, obviously, his rank. They can be peers without being equals. And that's, uh, that's complicated, that's subtle, and it was gotten across really well in a show that up till now has not been great at subtlety or complication. Although that's helped, I'm sure, by the fact that Johnny Frakes and Patrick Stewart have been out of the gate two of the strongest actors with uh, the ability to convey three-dimensionality and depth no matter what the script is. The scene where they're running to rescue the people in the fallen-apart uh, building or whatever that was, the medical rescue thing they needed to do they know they're going to have to get to a part where Data's fucking lifting boulders and throwing them around and it would have been awkward to just say Data, you have super strength because you're a robot you do it 
So what they did was there's this little teeny thing at the opening where Riker couldn't get the door open because it's stuck. And so Data is just like, whoop, opens it nice and easy. Riker sort of steps aside for him to do it because he knows it's his role because of how strong he is. It shows. It's a show rather than tell for a quick little setup there so that when he starts throwing the rocks around, you're ready. Really simple storytelling technique used very effectively here. And while we're on this scene here, that it is Data that sort of asks the question, brings up to Riker that he could save the girl. I was almost mad. I almost thought, oh, come on, that's dumb. Like, just focus on Johnny Frakes' face. We'll get it. Like, it's unrealistic for another bridge officer to ask that of him. Until I realized it's actually dope because it's a character moment for Data. He doesn't understand why he shouldn't have fucking said that, because he doesn't understand. That's that's his character. If you had to encapsulate his character, it would be, he doesn't understand. And then uh, after that, the cocky Riker, the, the god power cocky Riker. Amazing. Johnny Frakes. Love him. Fucking love. I had no idea he was this good. Like, I, obviously I remembered Patrick Stewart as dope from way back when I first watched this, but man, Frakes... A young Johnny Frakes fucking killing it here. Picard's Gambit was genius. It was worthy of the mantle of a Starfleet captain, of a captain of the Enterprise, and of a protagonist of a Star Trek show. It was uh, it was amazing, and it had to do with knowing what being human is, which I feel like it always should if it's Star Trek. That should always be your plan. What, are you going to shoot your way out? No, you understand your way out. This is Star Trek. That said... Not all of the components of that gambit worked perfectly in the scene from a sort of narrative and emotional perspective. The wharf one, uh, where the temptation was the Klingon warrior lady, was uh, the one where uh, Wheaton, fucking Wesley, is allowed to be 25 or whatever. It didn't hit me. Even Geordi's was uh, only B-plus for me, but the two best parts about it were the small nod of continuity when he looks around at everybody when he's got his real eyes. That's the temptation. He's got the real eyes. And he sees Tasha Yar for the first time. And they really spend a moment on that. And he says she's beautiful. Because if you remember, uh, they slept together when she was on the Naked Time virus. And that's continuity! Which I love. I love continuity, so I popped for that. And then the fucking acting. The fucking acting that LeVar Burton pulls off when he's asking to have his old lack of sight reinstated. And the camera's nice and close up on him, and he's looking up at Riker. And he says, Please. Just a, just a, a hint of desperation. But so honest, so vulnerable... Beautiful, beautiful job, LeVar Burton, just for that one fucking word. But the one that takes the cake, Data. Oh my god, fucking heartbreaking. He knows what the temptation's gonna be, like right away before, and he's just like, no. The uh, temptation is obviously being turned into a human. And before it can even be offered, he says he doesn't want it, and that it wouldn't be real not to him and he says that being human 
is all that matters to him. But he does not want to cover one illusion with another. And while Wesley wants to grow to be 25 the natural way, while Jordy is a blind person, and the way he sees the world through the visor informs who he is, he would take normal sight if the circumstances were right. It isn't a great burden to be who he has been this whole time. And while Worf may seem a little lonely, uh, he kind of brings it upon himself by pretending he's not, like, raised in Russia, by insisting on being all Klingon all the time and not having a foothold in actual Klingon culture. That's his choice, too. Whereas Data is not giving up what Q. Riker thinks he wants because he's already where and who he needs to be. He's giving up what Q. Riker thinks he wants because it would be just as inadequate as who and what he is now. And that's that's fucking heartbreaking. Best moment of the entire episode. That would have gotten it room temperature for me right there, I think. That was fucking beautiful. And that said, I guess it's time to rate it on the Earl Grey scale. I don't think we've hit this yet. On the Earl Grey scale, this is lukewarm. This is, like, almost drinkable. Like, this was actually a good episode. It wasn't a tolerable episode. It wasn't a, a better episode than the other ones. This was, like, a good episode. Is it the, the, the bottom? Is it the bottom uh, bits of the good bracket? It's not, you know, it's not even approaching great. It's probably approaching only decent. Might not be enough to get me to watch the series if I didn't know what it was, and this is the episode you showed me. I'd be like, yeah, that was okay. You go ahead and watch it. But not a whole lot to complain about. Uh, a lot in its favor. After after the last few weeks, this is this is the the sort of ray of hope that I required to be able to keep doing this. <laughs> was the cat Jesus? It was the cat. This section should be a mite shorter. Uh, when Q first appears, Worf does this this vault over the railing that separates the captain from the people working behind him. Uh, it's just it was a really embarrassing looking vault. Really a <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, I will, however, defend that bridge design as not stupid. Uh, well, not stupid on the part of the people making the show. Stupid on the part of Starfleet. In kayfabe stupidity. Because it's a science vessel. They don't think about fighting as much as they should. And also, like, nobody should be getting to the bridge regardless if there's something going on. If the shields are up, nobody can beam in. I believe that was an oversight by the designers in San Francisco. You see what I'm saying? Uh, a couple of a couple of Tasha notes. That's starting to become a theme, and it, it's bothering me because she used to be my favorite part of this fucking show. There's all the stuff going on on the soundstage planet with Q and Riker and all this talking and all of this stuff. And they're going to play a game, and Worf says as long as the game is fair. And Q's basically like, fair? Why Why would I make the game fair? Like, that's not fun, that's not creative. Obviously, I'm going to make the game unfair. 
And Tasha loses her shit at this. She was standing there, hadn't said a word. She's security. Like, the camera wasn't even on her. I don't know what she was doing. Just fucking twiddling her thumbs. But as soon as Q says that he's going to make the game unfair, Tasha's like, oh, hell no. You've gone too far. This unfair games. That, I didn't get... That was weird to me. It didn't play. And then she's in the penalty box, which is like a concept rather than a place. And she gets sent back to the bridge, and she breaks down crying. And then she's like, what am I doing? Crying? And uh, I'm wondering the same thing. Who are you, Tasha Yar? Episode to episode, you're a very different person. And I don't... Like, are you schizophrenic? Like, what is happening here? Do the writers just not know how to write women? It's probably that. It's probably that. During the fight with the piggy French people, uh, Jordy, <laughs> when Jordy gets the first shot in his direction, and he goes, whoa, and jumps out of the way, it's fucking comical. Ugh. And then the dive he takes, he tries to take a dive roll, and like spikes himself on the back of his head and folds himself up and then like kind of tries to roll out of it and I've done that too you know I trained to be a pro wrestler I did parkour I know what it's like to go for a dive roll and not rotate quite enough by the time you're coming down on the back of your head and like top of your shoulders and you spike yourself and you try to make it look okay but um, if I was being filmed I would have said let's do another take but they don't do that on Star Trek. There's no no time for second takes. Technically, we got the shot. Let's move on. And then two of sort of my most real complaints have to do with the gifts that were given to Riker. Uh, why he got them and how Picard treats Riker getting them. So the first one first, as it should be. The Q, um, the Q continuum, the Q people, whatever are interested in humanity. And by that, they literally mean humans because of our capacity for growth and change. And it's all, I mean, it's all very cliche sci-fi stuff. But the issue to me is it's very anthropocentric, considering that the show is not about a human vessel. It's not about a human crew it's not about uh, Earth policy. This is a federation. A federation of planets. Everyone should be important. Right? Like, what's with this humans are special, they build communities shit in a show that's about uh, a government, a coalition that transcends any species or planet? And it's not something wrong with the episode. You can't pull out your fact sheet and go, Oh, well, actually, uh, the warp speed, it's not one of those. It just, it's, it's a weird choice considering what Star Trek and what Starfleet and what the Federation is. Why is this episode and this Q plan so anthrocentric? And it just started niggling at me more and more as the episode went on. It started bothering me more and more as the episode went on. And it wasn't enough to ruin it. I like the episode. Uh, it's just a weird fit for me. And then second thing second, as is appropriate, 
I understand the idea of what Picard was saying when it comes to Riker not using his powers, but there was a finality to it. They had, like, a two-minute meeting, and it was seemingly just sort of decided that Riker would never use those powers, the end, if you don't go with Q, just no more using the powers ever for the rest of your life. Or I, Like, wh- why? Why is that decision being made now? I absolutely understand that, like, while we are on this mission to go medical rescue those people, let's not deal with this. This is a bigger, this is bigger than, than we can handle in the midst of this mission. But once that mission is done, as soon as you've got a second to breathe, this requires more thought. I don't even think, like, officially this is a decision he can or should be making. He's just the captain of that ship. And granted, Riker is his officer. But this is big. A human having Q powers? That's big. And if I were San Francisco, I would want some fucking say. And maybe they shouldn't have say. I'm not saying I trust Starfleet to make that decision. But if I found out later on Riker had Q powers and nobody asked what I thought as president of the Federation or the Admiralty of Starfleet or whatever, I'd be pissed. And if I were Riker, I would be pissed that the decision was made so quickly and so finally when more thought is really required in the long run when it comes to that. I guess it did give Riker's indignation uh, a a flare of justifiability, but considering the finish where Picard suns him, it, it wasn't worth it. Somebody needs to get on top of the situation and fix it! Not a lot to fix here. I... Hmm. Little things, right? I would have taken Wesley out. He wasn't... He wasn't necessary. He didn't add anything, really. You could have spent his temptation in the final gambit on Tasha instead. He wasn't even in the first however long, and then he showed up for the final act and a half. And it didn't, it wasn't necessary, it didn't help. And then I guess you can fix the crying, the penalty box scene where Tasha cries so that you can tie it into whatever her wish is going to be, which is a question all its own. Maybe she could have the inverse wish of what they gave Wesley. Maybe she wants to be five again before being abandoned on that roaming rape gang planet. Maybe she wants a chance to do it again, to do it better, to live a normal life, one where she doesn't have to become strong and hardened. And then I guess the way you tie that back is in the penalty box scene, she's unnecessarily cold to the idea of her own death because she can't let any vulnerabilities show. And then the ability to be vulnerable is kind of her wish later on. And there's little things little teeny things uh you know a lot of it would be solved by just giving him more time to properly do an episode these are so rushed i mean i i know they are because i know about the making of star treks to a certain extent i've read about it and stuff but you can also just tell just looking at it you're like they, they should have done another take of that why like 
oh man, they they do not have uh, they do not have what they need to work with when it comes to editing together the episode because of how quickly stuff is being done. I noticed uh, a similar problem with season two of Netflix Daredevil compared to season one, which was given all the time it needed. Uh, shots out of place and, and anyway that's neither here nor there I'm, I'm trying to explain to you my bona fides that I can recognize this uh, and so I would I would give them more time I, I would I would give them more time during production to get stuff right I that's I don't know if that counts as part of the you need to fix it section but there you are and that's that's it a good episode not a lot to complain about not a lot to fix uh, not a lot to be angry about. And enough to make me hopeful for the future when I review more episodes, which I will do, because I will see you next time! <laughs>